0: Hello and welcome to the LC podcast, where we share the stories of lung cancer patients and their caregivers, as well as the work of doctors and researchers in the field. Today, we have the great honor and privilege of having Taylor Duck with us. Taylor Duck is a two time graduate of East Carolina University with a bachelor's degree in political science and a minor in business administration, as well as a master's in public administration with a focus on health policy. During her college tenure, she played soccer for the Pirates, but was diagnosed with lung cancer at the age of 21, which ended her soccer career. Her unfortunate diagnosis ultimately shaped her career path and community involvement, as she has spent the majority of her time dedicated to raising awareness, advocating for better treatment options, and more research funding for cancer patients. She currently works for industry in the oncology space. And prior to her current role, she served as a Physician Outreach and Market Development Manager for the Oncology Service Line at ECU Health in Greenville, North Carolina, the Director of Development for the College of Business at ECU, and as the Community Outreach Manager for UNC Carolina Well Support and Survivorship Program, which is part of the UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Support Program. And outside of her career, Taylor has devoted her time to serving the community through a number of local nonprofit organizations. She's married to Robert, who is a high school health NPE teacher and coach, and has a daughter, Dottie, who is 16 months old. They reside in Greenville, North Carolina, and spend as much time as possible at the beach during the summers with their chocolate lab, Cayman. Taylor, we are so honored to have you on our podcast today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So to introduce our moderators, uh, my name is Priyanka Sento.
1: My name is Maida Naga.
2: And my name is Anish Gugulam, and we're with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, a national 501c3 nonprofit working to raise awareness of lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So to get started, Taylor, could you please share with us a little more about what your lung cancer journey has looked like so far?
3: Yeah, so I was diagnosed in October of 2007. So I am coming up on my 16th cancerversary is what I call it. So it's the um, everybody celebrates that that date a little bit differently in terms of their end of treatment or their start of treatment or whatever it is. But for me, it was um, the day that I was surgically resected. That's the date that I celebrate. But I was a college soccer player in the best shape of my life, had no really health issues, and worked really hard for a preseason and was ready to go. And then I got to campus in August, and we were doing two days. And, you know, I didn't feel quite right. But I was like, you know, it's just really hot. And we don't have air conditioning in our dorms. And, you know, everybody was tired. And so I just kind of brushed it off. But what really started to make me realize that something wasn't quite right was that I couldn't pass a fitness test that you're required to pass in order to play. And it's called one twenties. And basically you have to do 10 of them and it's, you know, 120 yards. So a football field plus the end zones. Um, and you have to make it down in 18 seconds and then back in 25. And then you have like a 30 second breath break, and then you go again. And on number six, that number, the 18 second timeline goes down to 17 or 16 seconds. I don't remember exactly, but you're really pushing. And every single time I would fail when we got to that number, and so the only other symptom that I had was numbness and tingling in my toes. And I had nerve conduction studies done, CT or not a CT, but a chest X-ray, a brain MRI, because just the numbness and tingling was the only weird thing. And everything pretty much just turned up normal, except for the chest X-ray, which I didn't know at the time. We can, we can circle back around on that because I, I didn't find that out until I was diagnosed. But the chest X-ray did say further follow up was needed, but no one told me that. Um, and I think that's because of the stigma that lung cancer has. And we can talk all about that. And I think y'all are very familiar with it. But, you know, I didn't fit the mold of what a lung cancer patient looks like. And so they I think they just kind of dismissed it. And long story short, after an entire year of just pretty much being miserable and not performing at the level in which I was used to, I decided to stop playing soccer. And my life drastically changed because that was really all I had done my entire life was dedicated to soccer and I loved the game. And so I kind of had to find some new hobbies and some new friends. And um, I joined a sorority and got involved in student government and really enjoyed my college experience, but I kept getting recurrent pneumonia. And that is actually what caused me to get diagnosed was I had had multiple bouts of pneumonia where they had handed me a ZPAC and kind of sent me on my way And then one random fall afternoon um, on fall break, I was home in my hometown of Wilmington and I thought my appendix was rupturing. And it was Saturday night at 11 o'clock and there was nowhere to go but the emergency room. And so my parents were actually out of town on a Boy Scout trip with my little brother in the middle of the woods. So my sister and I went to the emergency room and we were able to, to identify that you know, after a CT of my abdomen and pelvis that there was something wrong with my lungs. And that's ultimately what initially kicked off the diagnosis. Um, And ever since then, you know, it's been a learning curve to learn about the disease. And and we can go into more details about what that workup looked like and things. But I know that y'all probably want to ask a few more things and talk about, you know, y'all's initiative before we get going um, fully in my story.
0: No, Thank you, Taylor, for sharing your cancer journey and, and timeline with us. I think we've, we've heard for so many different patients that it receiving their diagnosis was definitely not a straightforward path because for, for a lot of these patients and, and for their doctors, you know, lung cancer is not the first thing on their list. And so they, they've had to undergo multiple different tests and, and oftentimes their lung cancer was detected incidentally. And so, especially in your case, you know, the time from you know symptom onset to actual diagnosis had, was several was several months and, and years and so can you take us through what it was like to actually receive the diagnosis was it you know I, i'm sure i'm sure it came out of the blue and but but was it you know in a way relieving to have a diagnosis to explain the symptoms that you were feeling it, it would just be great to to know kind of what was going through your mind then and and like when you receive your diagnosis, then maybe, you know, a couple of weeks, days later.
3: Yeah. So it was interesting because I was in the emergency room. So it was an ER physician that came in and she said, you know, your stomach looks fine. Your appendix looks good. You do have a small cyst on your ovaries, but to be a 21 year old, that's kind of normal. We're not really worried about that. she, She said, you know, there is something a little concerning about your lung. You know, there's a small spot. Do you, do you know that your lung is partially collapsed. And I immediately was like, well, no, I I didn't know that. And by the grace of God, a nurse came in after that physician and said, you know, I just want to be very clear. And she crouched down beside the bed. It was almost like she was like a little bit breaking code and advocating for me, but she basically just said, you know, I want to be very clear that this is not a small spot. It is a mass. It is four centimeters big and your lung is almost completely collapsed. You immediately need to follow up. And that was kind of shocking. And then, you know, I I still like I wasn't clinical. I was 21 years old. I was there with my sister who's 23. We were without my parents, couldn't get a hold of them because they had no service. But, you know, I didn't ever re- really register like lung cancer at that point because she just said mass. And so I didn't identify like this is lung cancer. I just made th- more. I was like, oh, well, no wonder I couldn't pass the fitness test. My lungs collapsed. I'm working on one lung and I'm the right, la- right, right lung at that. So, you know, I guess the time in which I was like, oh, this is really serious was after I left the emergency room. We followed up with pulmonary. Pulmonary did a bronchoscopy. Unfortunately, the bronchoscopy didn't reveal any diagnostic information and so they basically referred me to a a surgeon and said you know this has to come out regardless if it's malignant or not so you know you need to have it out and so we went to a surgeon in my hometown and that's when it kind of was like oh this is way serious he walked in and he said so miss bell which i was taylor bell before i got married i understand that you have lung cancer and we were all like wait what like nobody had used the word cancer, nobody had used the word malignant. You know, my parents were both sitting there. And we just all of us just completely overwhelmed by by that comment. And so um, he talked to us about the options for surgery. And, you know, he wasn't fellowship trained thoracic surgeon. He was a general surgeon. um, And at the time, I don't believe that there were any thoracic surgeons in that area. And so, you know, If I was going to receive care locally, that was going to be the option. And he talked about, you know, an open thoracotomy and, you know, rib spreading and all the stuff that comes with that type of surgery. And thankfully, my mom and dad, you know, said, well, there's got to be a better option. And so we um, ended up getting a second opinion at Duke. And I was able to see basically the godfather of thoracic surgery. He, he pretty much pioneered um, that lobectomies and is widely respected across the world. And so that was a much better option for me in terms of, you know, severity of the surgery and trying to minimize the pain and the recovery and all the things that come with a lung resection. And so thankfully, I had parents who were willing to, you know, push and, and um, get, a second opinion, which ultimately I think really changed the trajectory of my life.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And it must've been so jarring to just suddenly Mm -hmm. hear that word lung cancer thrown around. And you mentioned that you were really fortunate to get a second opinion from a renowned thoracic surgeon, and that was how you got the VATS lobectomy. So could you talk a little bit more about what that means and what are the pros and cons associated with that procedure?
3: Yeah. You know, I think that the main thing, this was 16 years ago. And so to see the advances that we've made just in the last 16 years is like so impressive, but it was definitely a better option then. And it's definitely a better option now. Um, I, I personally, unless I don't think any patient should have to have an open door unless that is truly their only option. Um, I think that there's power in a second opinion. And I think it's important to know your options. And that comes with doing research and trying to be educated, which I think sometimes is really challenging for people because one, not everybody's clinical, but two, when you don't feel well, um, you might not necessarily have the energy or the option to, to spend time researching. And so I challenge physicians to be knowledgeable about surgeons in their communities and also in academia to know where what their options are and what the differences are between, you know, general surgery and a fellowship trained thoracic surgeon and the importance of patients having the opportunity to get multiple opinions. Um, and that's not to say that you can't receive really great care close to home in a community setting. 85% of patients in the in the world or in, in America are treated in the community oncology setting. So, but I do think that there is time and place for a higher level of care. And I think thoracic surgery is one of those things. Um, and for me, you know, I just felt an ease um, with being with Dr. Um, D'Amico and the PA that that literally is his right-hand man, Scott Balderson. They educated us. They drew pictures to explain. They talked through the entire procedure of VATS, which is video-assisted thoracic Copic surgery. That's a mouthful. That is a lot easier to say, but it's basically a small keyhole incision that is between the two ribs and then about an inch, inch and a half incision underneath my left breast that is where the actual lung is pulled through. The small keyhole is where the camera goes and it just allows for, you know, no rib spreading. I'm not saying that it is not painful because. Let me just tell you, uh, nobody told me this until afterwards, and but they say that thoracic surgery is the most painful thing a patient can experience, and so you know that recovery was not something I was expecting. Um, I don't think I was really prepared for it. I think they thought that I would tolerate it really well because I was in really great shape and you know highly motivated. I fit the diagram of you know who is the ultimate patient that would benefit from a type of surgery. But I think for me, mentally, I wasn't necessarily prepared for the level of pain because I was so young and I had never experienced any type of pain before. I'd never really broken a bone. I had never torn an ACL. I um, hadn't had a child. You know, all of the things that they say, you know, are, are really painful. I, I hadn't experienced. And so i just wasn't ready for the level of i guess recovery as well but i'm thankful that i did it and i wouldn't turn back and choose a different option at this point um but i probably would have had more frank conversations of what my expectations were in terms of pain management and as well as what the plan of recovery was going to look like because you know it really set me back uh, a lot much more than what i had anticipated
2: so, Taylor, you mentioned at the tail end of the conversation, like recovery and pain management were some of the difficulties that you had to endure after the procedure. Um, what are some strategies that you used to get through these particularly difficult times, like you mentioned, after both the diagnosis and the treatment and the procedure?
3: Yeah. So, leading up to surgery, I was kind of in a state of denial, which I'm sort of grateful for. Otherwise, I think I would have gone crazy with the amount of anxiety that it it could have brought on, but I was in such a mode of like, let's just get it out and be done with it. that I didn't really have a chance to think about it. I did have a bronchoscopy up at Duke so that they could try to get another biopsy. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think it's anything related to Duke, but I just, I got really bad pneumonia after that. And so I actually could not pass pulmonary function test um, because of the collapsed lung and the m- pneumonia in order for them to take me to surgery. So I had to wait several weeks to, um, to actually get get the surgery done. And so during that, those few weeks, one, I was just really, really sick. So I didn't feel good. So I didn't really have time to like, think about, you know, the, the, the diagnosis itself. But two, it was before the law was in place where in order to be insured, um, you had to remain a full-time student under your parents' insurance. So we were trying to get everything figured out academically and what that looked like for me. Because obviously it altered my ability to be focused on my academics. And so a lot of that was just trying to get everything in order so that once I did go to surgery, I'd be okay. And so that's one thing that was good prior to the surgery. I just didn't have a chance to really be worried about it. I I will say, you know, the day or the night before surgery, I was definitely really scared, but I didn't have really any other option. And so, you know, you just kind of roll with it and go with it and figure it out. I was really nervous about pain management, particularly because it was kind of at the forefront of the opioid epidemic. And I just, you know, you have this thing in your mind about like, if I have to take narcotics that I might possibly get addicted. And so I got really nervous about that. And we talked about it and they said, you know, well, if you're nervous about that, how about we do try to do oral um, narcotics instead of IV narcotics just to see if you can tolerate it. And so that was the plan going in. And it it um, I wish that there had been more discussion about pain management and that the difference between an oral and an IV drug and you know, because I think there's dependency issues for, for both of those. And I ended up having IV narcotics and it made a huge difference in terms of my ability to manage the pain, but also my ability to get up and walk, which they want you up immediately following surgery. I mean, after you get out of the ICU, but on the step down unit. And that was a huge challenge for me. It was, it was very, very hard. And so I had to be bribed. <laughs> um, and so My parents, you know, would say, you know, that hair straightener that you really want that you've asked for for Christmas, like if you get up and walk a lap, we'll buy it for you. You know, they were, they had done anything and everything that they could to get me out because it just truly was so painful that nothing would work other than bribery. And at the time, um, I had recently just started dating my boyfriend then, now husband. I met him two weeks prior to my diagnosis and he stuck with me through it all and, you know, I think him being a high school coach made a big difference for me as well, because he had that motivation that, you know, other people don't necessarily have. And so even though we were so new in our relationship, and it was very, very raw to bring somebody into the fold, he wanted to be there. And so I let him and, you know, ultimately, I credit him a lot for my, survivorship and my ability to push through because he was with me, you know, every step of the way. And then, you know, once I got done and through recovery, I had I had my surgery on November the 15th. And then I had to be back at school that following January to start because I, again, if I wanted to keep my health insurance, I had to be a full-time student. And so I think that if that wasn't the case, I probably would have taken another semester off and Really focused on my recovery, but I needed health insurance. And so I had to go back to school. And so we worked on, you know, trying to build up my stamina so that I could walk to class and just trying to work through any of the challenges that that brought. Because, you know, at that point, it was hard to carry a book bag, it was hard to dress myself, it was hard to get up out of bed by myself. Um, All of those things were a challenge. And so just working through the logistics of that. I
0: I think your story is you know, brings a very unique perspective since you were a student when you were diagnosed and it's um i think a lot of us here are right around the 20-19 years age range and it's just you know i i couldn't even begin to imagine what a diagnosis um like lung cancer w- would even entail in terms of impacting impacting my life and i think as a student you're you're very focused on academics and you know the next step and and just to have to understand and think through you know what a surgery would bring in and, and and what what life after surgery would look like i you know i i think it's it's not something that, that a lot of students go through and and so i wanted to ask about that so switching gears a little bit was you know after receiving your your diagnosis did that change your outlook your your perspective your you know your priorities um you you mentioned that you you had to go back to school in order to keep your insurance so 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 you were so you're, you're back in you're back in school very quickly but but did that change anything in terms of you know your future goals and and how did you deal with the uncertainty of of you know of what a lung cancer diagnosis would bring because you know sixteen years ago the the prognosis for lung cancer it, it, it's it's definitely gotten better um, over the years but even now a lot of patients tell us that like, you know when I received my diagnosis there there wasn't a lot of hope for lung cancer patients. And so I can only imagine that 16 years ago, it was, it was even worse than, than what patients are feeling right now. And so, so could you talk to us about how you navigated those emotions and that uncertainty?
3: Yeah, so it was definitely doom and gloom. You know, I kept looking for people online, you know, stories that were similar to mine. And it was right around the time when like blogging had just kind of come out and Facebook was just kind of getting started. I think it had just come to the point where you didn't have to actually be invited to be on Facebook. Anybody could be there. But initially it was everybody. You had to be invited and you had to be at a certain university and all those things. So... Every hashtags didn't really exist. So there was really no way to find stories of hope. And so every time I'd go to a blog, it'd be like, oh, and so and so died. And you're like, okay, this is not, not a good place to be. So I immediately stopped that. And I stopped Dr. Google. I did not Google anything. I have a family history of lung cancer as well. So my grandmother, my great grandfather, and my great uncle have all died of lung cancer. And so my grandmother's diagnosis, she was diagnosed and passed away 40 days later. So stage four, uh, and it was, it was really, really sad. And that happened a little bit prior to my diagnosis. So it was really hard not to get in that mindset. But I just kind of like I said, you know, initially just rolled with the punches because I didn't have a choice. But I think where I really started to struggle was at my three month post op visit. So all my girlfriends were on spring break in Jamaica, and I was having a hard time getting out of bed to dress myself. So clearly I was not in Jamaica with everybody else. And so I started to get really depressed. Um, and I started to realize that my life was definitely um, different than it was before. And it wouldn't, Never likely be the same. And so I immediately like got really depressed and I was at my three month follow up and my surgeon had sat down on the stool in front of me and he said to um, me, he's like, so how are you doing? You know, your scans are good. We're, we're moving along. You don't have to have any type of systemic therapy, you know, like you, you're good. And I, I just started crying. And I said, you know, this is like, really not fair. My life is very different. I'm in a lot of pain. You know, lung cancer has taken so much from me. And so he said, Do you know anything about lung cancer? And I said, Well, no, other than it's like robbed me of my grandmother, my great grandfather, my great uncle, and now it's rob- robbed me of my college adulthood life. And he's like, no, 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 do you know anything about like the statistics of lung cancer? And so he, he just went on a path of you know lung cancer is the number one cancer killer of men and women in this country it kills more people than breast prostate and colon cancers combined it's the least funded of all major cancers you know there's so many stigmas associated with the disease which delay diagnosis and hinder care and he just kept on and on and on and on and he said you know what has happened to you is not fair no one should ever have to experience this but you are a survivor a survivor And you have the opportunity to make a difference. And are you willing to stand up for the 85% that don't have this chance? And at that point I was like, well, yeah, of course I'm happy to do that. but, But like, what does that mean? You know, like, how do I, I don't really know what, how I can make a difference. And he said, well, have you ever considered sharing your story? I'm like, doc, I'm literally three months out. Like I'm I'm just trying to like get dressed in the morning. And he said, you know, I actually have an opportunity. Um, it's next week. It's a presentation to, um, 2,700 physicians and, PAs, are you interested in going? And I thought, Oh my God, what have I signed myself up for? So um, that was my first speaking engagement. And ever since then, I mean, I pretty much haven't stopped. It's been important for me to um, share my story, but not only my story, but share about the facts of lung cancer and to try to, to change the face of the disease and to break the stigma that's associated with it. And to push physicians both in the primary care setting, but also, you know, in oncology and thoracic surgery and pulmonary and anybody that has the potential to touch a patient's life to, you know, really treat lung cancer as an emergency um, where patients deserve compassion, regardless if they smoked or they didn't smoke. And everybody deserves the exact same care um, in terms of the chance to fight. And so, you know, I've been on this journey for 15 years, and you know, initially I wouldn't say that I would choose it, but I would say that I'm definitely grateful for my diagnosis. It's changed. Um, I didn't always feel that way. That um, has that that mindset has changed over the years, um, and I think that the reason. Um, As you grow in your survivorship, you start to see the beauty of the diagnosis as well. And it's changed my outlook on life. It's made me appreciate every day. It's given me a purpose, a platform. It's given me the ability to speak for people who don't have a voice. And it just keeps me fueled because it's a big monster that we're dealing with. And there is, like you said, we've come a long way in 15 years and a, a really long way in the last five, but we still have a really long way to go.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And before we move on to further questions about your involvement in the lung cancer community, I just wanted to touch on something that you mentioned earlier about uh, patient advocacy. So you mentioned that when around the time when you were first diagnosed, uh, your chest X-ray came back with further follow-up needed, but you weren't informed that further follow-up was recommended by the doctor. And you only found out about the findings on your chest X-ray when your mom requested all of your records. So what advice would you give to patients to ensure that there's a consistent line of communication with their doctor to ensure that they're fully aware of any findings or any recommended follow-up?
3: So I always encourage patients whenever a new patient reaches out to me or somebody asks if I'll speak to a new patient, there's several things that I recommend, but one of the main things is, is that I always ask for a copy of the report from the radiologist, but I also ask for them to pull up my scan and to show it to me and explain, you know, this is a chest CT and it's like a loaf of bread and it's pulled out in slices and each slice sometimes can catch different areas of the lung. And, you know, I, I have, I tell patients to to do that as well with their physicians. Um, so that way you're aware of what's actually written on the report and that you've seen it with your own eyes. The other thing that I always recommend is, is and it's not as, as important now because with medical records and having patient portals and all of those things, you can see a lot of the stuff that again, 2007, that stuff was not available. So one of the things that was a challenge for me was that there was a lot of paperwork. And so it's a discharge summary or a bill or, you know, a scan result or, you know, clinical trial option or whatever it may be, patient education, literature, it it got overwhelming. And so what I did was I had a tote bag and I literally stuck everything in that one bag. Even if I didn't have a chance to read it, I just stuck it in there. And then that way, if I needed it down the road, I knew exactly where it was, as opposed to like in a random mail bin and on my desk and in my book bag and in my pocketbook. It was just one centralized place. And so I always encourage patients to do that. Um, the other thing that I encourage folks to, to do is to really try to educate themselves. And there's now numerous resources and foundations that provide that type of um, information to them. And so I encourage them to you know, print out the new lung cancer. You've been newly diagnosed with lung cancer. These are questions you should ask your physician or things that you should do or things you should ask about. Um, and it's just a matter of, like, being an advocate for yourself um, or for others who have been diagnosed that you're helping. Um, and it's, you know, I like to call it respectfully question authority. Um, and so challenge your physicians. Ask questions. If you don't understand, tell them just wait a minute and to sit down and to have a conversation. And, you know, that's been that's gotten a little easier for me but sometimes it can be a challenge because doctors are really busy and they do this every single day and it's like talking you know regular like you and I are talking but they're using all these complex medical terms and you don't really know and there's all these acronyms and genetic biomarkers and all these things and um as a patient who doesn't feel good, it can be really, really overwhelming. So making sure that you have somebody that can help and advocate for you or take notes or I um, actually turn my phone on and ask the physician, you know, would it be OK if I take a voice memo um, of you talking to me so that I don't miss anything? Um, I've never had a physician tell me no. Um, so, you know, it's just a way for me if I am there by myself to have an extra set of ears so that if I do have a question, I can go back and, you know listen to it again. So that'd be a word of advice as well.
2: So Taylor, uh, we really admire your efforts in the lung cancer community. Could you describe some of the things that you're currently doing advocacy wise within the community?
3: Yeah, so I've been really fortunate to have the opportunity to work with several foundations um, and organizations. And I think that all of them do really, really important work. And so for me, um, I've never really chosen one specific foundation to work with because I think they all have a purpose. Um, and so, you know, Bonnie Adario with the Adario uh, Lung Cancer Foundation that is now the go-to foundation for lung cancer uh, was started by Bonnie who is a lung cancer survivor and her and her entire family have dedicated their lives to trying to make a difference for patients. And they're based on the West coast and they recently merged with um the Lung Cancer Alliance, which was based out of DC, which is policy focused. And so They um, it's actually like the perfect marriage because, you know, lung cancer and the funding and the policy related to it, as well as the patient support, education, awareness, research is really important as well. And so those two organizations merging together, I think, was a a really great thing. And they have wonderful patient resources and, you know, really well connected in terms of the lung cancer community. And so I've done a fair amount of work with them, um, particularly after. Jill Costello was diagnosed um, with lung cancer stage four. She was a rower, a coxswain at Berkeley and actually rode for the national championship right at right during her diagnosis towards the end of her her life um, before she passed away, unfortunately. But we started organization under Bonnie um, called Jill's Legacy, which was trying to change the face of lung cancer, particularly for young adults. And, and bringing awareness to disease. That organization has since kind of rolled up underneath, you know, GoTo Foundation, and they have that encompassed in their work with their young lung cancer study and all of the work that they're doing. But that's what kind of fueled Bonnie to start the young lung cancer study. So I have a lot of respect for them. And then locally, you know, I'm from North Carolina and the Lung Cancer Initiative in North Carolina, I think does really great work. It funds young investigative researchers, um, particularly because, you know, early on, around in 2007, after my diagnosis, one, one of the things that I learned that was shocking was that a lot of researchers didn't choose to go into lung cancer research because they were worried that they would not be able to receive the funding that they needed in order to s- sustain their research. And that just blew me away that there was people that were truly interested in trying to study lung cancer and understand more about it and were choosing different career paths because they t- weren't going to be funded um that to me is unacceptable and so i um the lung cancer initiative of north carolina funds young investigative researchers in north carolina specifically and so for me um that's been work that i do um with them as well and then i um make these holiday bows (laughs) that um you can put like on a door wreath and so through those bow sales as well as my like to know it which is a an app that you can shop things that I link. Um, and I make a small commission. I donate a hundred percent of all of my proceeds from that, as well as my bows that I sell to lung cancer research awareness and education. And I pick different foundations throughout the year that are specifically, um, supporting that cause and, and choose to, to give it. So that's a, a few things that I do. And, you know, a fair amount of public speaking but that has slowed down a little bit just because of starting my family and not being able to travel as much as I'd like.
0: Oh, it's so inspiring to hear your work Taylor and, and I think we've actually covered a very small portion of all of the the work um that you you you've, you've, you've um, done in this field and so we would love to ask you know a couple of questions targeted some of the some of the different Um, organizations you've worked with and efforts you've led, if that's okay. And so you shared with us earlier that you launched a survivorship program within your hometown um, under the UNC Comprehensive Cancer Support Program. And so could you please share more about this survivorship program as well as the survivorship care plan?
3: Yeah, so You know, survivorship was kind of a new term um, once after I was diagnosed, and a lot of people didn't really know what that means, and I still think that we're learning what that means as we continue to have more and more survivors, but um, I was hired right out of college to work for UNC Chapel Hill, but I was placed here in Greenville, which was the perfect fit, and they have the Comprehensive Cancer Support Network, which is run by Don Rosenstein at at UNC, and this term support and survivorship was so new that, you know, a lot of people didn't really know what to do or how to do it, Um, but how do you help patients live, you know, a meaningful life past their diagnosis and manage through possible late and long-term effects and to help improve continuity of care and all of the things that come with being a long-term survivor, and so I um, had the privilege to stand up a support and survivorship program here in Greenville. And so we created um, support groups for patients, um, both disease-specific as well as not disease-specific. Um, we we used um, exercise and movement. We had an art therapy program um, so patients could do art when they were, you know, receiving chemotherapy, um, pet therapy. We also had a six week psychosocial program that helps patients transition from, you know, active medical oncology, radiation, surgical oncology care back into the primary care setting. Um, And it focused on emotional health and well-being and exercise and nutrition. And it just was meant to be the bridge to help those patients say, you know what, you're good you can transition back into the primary care setting to receive, you know, your regular care that you would get from a primary care physician. So um, that was really cool. And then there started to be some conversation about what is a survivorship care plan or a treatment summary and what does that look like? And so, you know, there are metrics now that are in place with the Commission on Cancer and, and institutions that are, you know, quite frankly, required to do this for these patients. And so, um. We worked on pulling information out of the electronic medical record that would be important for patients to have so that they had, you know, a three to five page concise document of their cancer diagnosis, the treatment that they received, you know, the dosing, the grades of radiation, where they were radiated, any surgery that they had had, which ultimately just helped them transition back into the primary care setting, because I think a lot for a long time, myself included, you know, anytime there was anything wrong with me, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to call my surgeon. And, you know, it was completely unrelated to anything that had happened with me related to my thoracic surgery, but I was, I felt comfortable with him because he had been taking care of me. And so, um, I can imagine how challenging it is for patients that do have to have chemotherapy and radiation in addition to surgery, um, because you get nervous that your primary care physician might not understand, or, you know, is it a later long-term effect related to my systemic therapy, or is it just really a UTI? Like, what are the issues? So, um, it, helped pa- it, it was meant to help patients kind of bridge back into the primary care setting and feel comfortable and confident that their physicians could take care of them. So that was part of the work that I did.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And could you also share a little bit more about the lung cancer screening program that you recently helped launch? When you spoke with our team, you shared that one of every 26 scans was a positive scan and that 85% of patients were diagnosed at stage one. And could you also share more about what you think is helping to drive this stage shift to diagnosing more lung cancers at early stages and what other lung cancer screening programs may um, be able to achieve similar results?
3: Yeah. So prior to coming to industry, I worked for a large, uh, academic healthcare center in Eastern North Carolina that um, had a level one tertiary center and then eight community hospitals across 29 counties in Eastern North Carolina. And, you know, we are in a place where there is unfortunately a high incidence of smokers. And so we had a lot of at-risk patients and we had had a very dedicated thoracic oncology team um, that was committed to making a difference for lung cancer patients. They cared about, you know, Early diagnosis, time to treatment, um, you know, doing all the molecular genetic testing that needed to be done and giving the right treatment for patients. And so part of that mission and the buy in from that team was also like, how can we make a difference for? newly diagnosed or people that are at risk that have no idea that they're even at risk or that they, you know, are ashamed of the the stigma that's associated with the lung cancer and smoking. And so how can we make a difference for them? And so we had a pulmonologist, Mark Bowling, who pretty much just said, we're moving forward and we're doing this and we will figure it out. And so part of my job in that um, role at ECU was to stand up and, and ultimately get patients screened and so I would call on referring physicians throughout the communities and talk to them about lung cancer screening and what it is and who qualifies and um, how they can get their patients in the door and what the back end follow-up looks like because I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we currently face is that it's not necessarily that physicians don't want to do it it's that there are overwhelmed and have a challenge of how do you manage the back end process of, you know, if a patient has a lung RADS 3 or 4 and needs to be screened, how do you keep up with that and who manages it and who sends the letter and all of the logistical and operational things that can hinder people actually being screened. And so, I worked with the the physician team, but also the administrative and referral and access team to really try to streamline that process and make it as easy as possible. And ultimately what we came up with was, you know, one page referral form and on the front of the form, it included, you know, what is lung cancer screening? Why would you benefit? Who qualifies? Uh, A graph to basically show and calculate how many pack years of smoking you have. Um, And it was really meant for the physician to talk through it with the patient about, you know, you would benefit and this is why. And then on the back side was the actual referral form. And it was into one portal of entry into our healthcare system where a team of schedulers would schedule the refer, schedule the screening, call the patient, send a map and directions to the patient about where and when their appointment is and how to get there. And then it also had a box with the shared decision making language that needed to be be included in the order set in order to be approved and um, paid for by insurance and so it checked the box for the referring physician because he could just scan it into the patient's chart and then he had you know it had documentation that I've discussed with the patient we've talked about smoking cessation and all the things that are required um, and then it also took the work off of their team to make the referrals because all they had to do is send it to this one portal and we had a team that did everything for them. And then on the back end, we had a lung cancer screening coordinator that did all of the, in, the back end follow up. So if a patient had normal results, she would in, either inform the physician that referred or inform the patient, whatever the physician preferred, because some physicians just say, y'all handle it and deal with it. And some physicians are like, no, I'd like to tell my patients. So We gave physicians the option to do whichever they would prefer, but it basically just took all of the legwork and the pushback that you would hear from referring physicians about it and made it so that they couldn't say no because they had no choice because it was so easy that it was like, okay, if you don't do it here, then you're really doing a disservice to your patients. And it's not because you're too busy or don't know how to refer them. It's because you don't believe in screening your patients. And so... Um, we were excited. We saw, you know, we scanned a lot of people and it's been four years since I've been there. So it's I don't want to quote any specific numbers, um, you know, that they're currently seeing. But I think that we obviously initially were targeting, you know, the cream of the crop in terms of high risk patients. And so I think that is why we saw such a high incidence. Um because, you know, we were seeing the most at-risk patients. I think that that number has kind of slowed down in terms of positives, but it's definitely still way more than one in 320, which the National Lung Cancer Training Trial, you know, revealed. Um, And so that team continues to be committed to really trying to change the game for lung cancer. And I just applaud them because it's not easy. And in my current job, you know, you hear about people and you read about, you know, people struggling to try to figure out how to make this work and where are the barriers and how as institutions can we make a difference um, to screen patients? Because, you know, if breast cancer is doing it in the high, you know, seventies and prostate cancer is the same way, there's no reason that lung cancer should be, you know, five, 6% nationally. I mean, it's just uncalled for, particularly when you get, if you can catch lung cancer early, and surgically resect them. And now with neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy, I mean, you can, I I, I hesitate to use the word cure because I don't even use that for myself, but you you can make cancer a chronically manageable disease as opposed to a death sentence.
2: That, that's awesome, Taylor. Um, So we're kind of getting to the near, the, getting near to the end of the podcast, but I just wanted to ask you, um, where can people find you on social media? How can they connect with you? Um, you have a ton of initiatives going on that are super interesting and fascinating. And we're just left to get that out to our audience.
3: Yeah. So I'd love for people to connect. You'll see it. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll definitely see a lot of my little girl and my husband and my dog, but I also post a fair amount about lung cancer stuff. So I want to make sure I tell you, right. So um Taylor.bell.duck on Instagram. And I think the same as Um, on Facebook, LinkedIn, I'm pretty much out there everywhere. So um, I'd love to connect and hear from people. You know, one of the biggest blessings of all of this is that I get the opportunity to connect with other people who have been touched by this disease. And, you know, I hope that my content provides a sense of hope, and that, you know, this, this, you can survive. um, And, I just try to be uh, as positive as possible, but also share the truth of lung cancer and, you know, that we still have so much work to do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Taylor, it truly has been a pleasure and honor to talk with you and learn from the wealth of knowledge and experience you have in the area of cancer advocacy. All of us truly appreciate all the work you're doing. So thank you so much. Um, And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of the Alsi podcast. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. And please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alsi.org. Thanks again, Taylor, and have a great day, everyone.